Welcome to the 89th episode of Two Writers Slinging Yang. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm a former Sports Illustrated senior writer, former ESPN columnist, and the author of multiple New York Times bestsellers. The music you're listening to is Croissants from the great MC White Owl. And this podcast is an ode to writing in all its forms, from sports writing to screenwriting to speeches to novels to love letters to whatever genre I'm thinking of. And today's guest is Susan Orlean, the wonderful staff writer for The New Yorker and the New York Times bestselling author of the recently released The Library Book, which concerns the April 29th, 1986 fire that burned down the central branch of the Los Angeles Public Library. And it's no exaggeration to place Susan on a list of America's most influential nonfiction writers. I mean, I've written bestsellers, but she's written bestsellers. And Meryl Streep played her in a movie. We met recently at a cafe in Los Angeles, and what followed was one of my all-time favorite writing chats. And it's right now on Two Writers Slinging Yang. All right, Susan. So first of all, thank you. Seriously, thank you for doing this and for meeting me for coffee. It's a delight. Oh, yeah, my pleasure. I appreciate it. And um, it's kind of funny. I was talking, so I spent many years at Sports Illustrated, and I've written eight books, and I've been on the list a bunch of times. And I was talking to a friend of mine today, and I was thinking about this. So my last book, as I just told you, was about the United States Football League. And everyone told me not to write this book, right? They said, don't write the book. Don't write the My agent literally said to me, nobody wants a fucking USFL book. That was a direct quote to me. And I pushed for it and fought for it. Then everyone said, it's an obscure idea, and blah, 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 right? And ended up selling very well. You wrote a book about a super obscure, the library fire of 1986. My book made the list, but your book made the list list. Like, your book is still on the list. It came out a month after my... And I, I actually asked a friend of mine. I was like, how, how does her book on a fire in 1986, like, take off and sell? And we were basically in the same circumstance. We wrote about relatively obscure right. things. And your book is selling off, the ch- like, is doing great. And my book did okay, and yours did great. And I'm, I'm being sincere about this. You're a more famous writer than I am. You're more mainstream than I am, blah, blah, blah. I'm kind of sports-specific. Right. How do you explain a book about a fire that took place at the L.A. Library in 1986 selling this well? I think that's a good question. And believe me, I think about it, too, because... It's not as if while I was working on the book, I thought, boy, this is a slam dunk. This is so obviously going to be a big deal. It was very specific to a place. It was about a library. It was something that happened in 86. No one died. Um, I mean, it was a big deal. But it wasn't hundreds of people dying in a landslide. There were moments when I had, you know, the dark night of the soul where I thought, no one's going to read this book. It's just, you know, too, it'll strike people as too boring. Right. For one thing, it had a built-in constituency, which is librarians, library people, people who love books. There are lots of people who just love books and love books about books. So that was a kind of uh, first line of enthusiastic readers. Secondly, I feel that I've won a certain amount of trust among readers that 
even though the ideas that I write about don't seem interesting, <laughs> I'm promising them that it will be. Right. And they're willing to take the leap. Um, but honestly, I, I find it a mystery. I mean, there it, it's a wonderful mystery. Right. It's a happy mystery. But it's an, it is kind of amazing. And I'm... But you've built a following, obviously. Like, yeah. you're aware of that. Like, there, is, there are these people now who read your books and look for your books. Right. And, they, and they're not looking at it in terms of whether the subject is of interest to them. They're right. willing to say, whatever, I want to read what you're writing. But this seemed, um, this seemed to have a kind of momentum that I didn't expect. I didn't. And I remember the day it came out thinking, I just, please, just let me get on the list for a week, you know, at least so that right. it can be, on the get the designation, yeah. New York Times bestseller. And it kind of exploded, right. which is fantastic. And what's amazing is it's gone up on the list. And the book came out in October. We're now at the very end of January, or is today February? No, today's Jan the last day of January. Oh, the last day yeah. of January. So it's a pretty steady pace to keep at a, particularly coming out in the fall, as you know, is a challenging time to have a book come out. Right. Because you've got a million celebrity profiles come out, and you know this year there were so many political books. So it's a tough season to release a book of narrative nonfiction and think about a library. About a library, right? From thirty years ago. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> In which no one died. That nobody knows about. It, right. That's unbelievable. I mean, it's truly unbelievable. It's kind yeah. of ridiculous because I'm telling you, like, I was told a million times, nobody's going to want your book, and at least my book had Trump. Right. Uh, Steve Young, Jim Kelly, like famous football players, Reggie White. You had none of that. You didn't have Trump in your book. <laughs> right. No. There's right. no Reggie White in your book. Right. It's unbelievable. Yeah. And and I, I, I think the thing is that it's almost impossible to predict with books what's going to get some traction and what clicks for people and I think for a lot of people it's a, something they love thinking about is their memories of going to the library when they were kids which I write a lot about in the book um, I think it's a very emotional book and my sense is that people respond to that and they, they then the word of mouth is the big driver of sales which is yeah yeah it's about a library that sounds so boring right. but it's it's very emotional right um beyond that we didn't have any kind of clever marketing scheme or um shrewd sort of approach to getting it out there it was just did you have any marketing scheme like how did no. you because you know the common I'm sure you and I you know have had similar experiences as in regard like the my first book came out in 2003 in the years since the marketing budgets at right. publishing They've companies gone is, way down and you become your own pimp as I always say like you are responsible for your own yeah um I don't know, do you, did you have to push this hard, or did you just sort of... Well, I did a really extensive book tour. Um, I think it ended up, when I'm all done, it'll be something like 32 cities. So it was, it was a big tour. 
um, and I did a lot of media, but there was no secret sauce. There was no special thing that we did to um, to make it work. And and what's interesting is there were certain media hits that we didn't get that were like you know I wasn't the on ones. the Today Show, right. and I wasn't you know there were things that were annoying and frustrating and disappointing and it didn't seem to matter what's number one on the hit you want media wise with a you have a um, book coming out what's the number one thing you want to be on to uh, sell books well I think NPR in yeah. any of the various NPR shows to me that's those are readers my guess is those are my readers and whether it's Morning Edition or All Things Considered or the show, you know, the Weekend Edition, Fresh Air, you know, all of the NPR stuff, right. I think, is really important for um, this kind of literary journalism, yeah. for sure. It's very interesting because I have the gift of Sports Talk Radio, which oh. guarantees you'll get on 200 radio stations. But I don't know if it sells that well. That's the thing. Like, we always say, like, doing going on whatever radio station in Fargo's biggest sports talk radio station you do your 15 minutes on there I don't know yeah well I think um, that's a very peculiar thing because similarly having an excerpt a big excerpt in a very prominent magazine has been shown to actually decrease sales I mean you think it's this amazing teaser that gets people to buy the book but apparently a lot of people feel that they've read the book if they've read a big excerpt wow and they feel like no I don't need to read it see I've always found not that this is about I've always found the key modern times are three or four excerpts always online so there has to be a direct link to Amazon has to be that to mm-hmm. me but no you disagree you would say no well I um, I'm actually just quoting my publisher oh. <laughs> that um, I did have an excerpt but not a long one where was that in the New Yorker uh-huh. and it was a shorter one than I normally do and they felt number one it was online and it meant it was shareable and ends up being a better marketing tool for a book than something in the magazine that can't really be shared and secondly it was a short enough excerpt that it didn't I don't think it would at all make you feel you had read the whole book right so it was I just have read too many excerpts where I feel the same way where I think well I don't need to buy the book right I've already read it it's really interesting years ago I wrote a I wrote a biography of Walter Payton and it was excerpted on the cover of Sports Illustrated and that was huge right that was huge for me right I would say nowadays I would take an online excerpt on Bleacher Report or some sports website over the cover of SI. Isn't that amazing? Crazy, right? Yeah. Crazy. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that that is, this was a really uh, bit of a watershed because in my earlier books, the idea of placing an excerpt in The New Yorker was the single kind of imprimatur of, of seriousness and value and that the book was you know literary and it was really important to have that right 
this time around, the feeling was, let's do it on the website. That way it can get shared and it doesn't have to be in the magazine and it shouldn't be long. I thought, wow, the times have It's very counterintuitive. Yeah, Yeah. it's very strange. Very much they've changed. Yeah. But um, I can understand it. Yeah. And I can understand why if you give too much of a, uh, of a book away, there can very clearly be the feeling that a reader has, which is, I've already read it. Right, right. It's hard to figure. Yeah. Um, all right, there's a... Uh, so I, I like to break things down in this, in this podcast, okay? okay? So we're going deep here. There's a section of this book that I read. I literally read it. I walked into my bedroom. I said to my wife, I was like, I just want to redo this. And... Um, she actually was like, you have to stop because I need to go to sleep and I'm going to have dreams of a fire. But I just want to, I won't make you read it. I'll read it to you real quick. And I, what I would love is to kind of take this apart a little bit, if that's cool with you. Okay. You're talking about the fire that took place in 1986 uh, in the central branch of the LA library. Right. I stated that correctly. And you wrote, um, at first, the smoke in the fiction sacks was as pale as onion skin. Then it deepened to dove gray. Then it turned black. It wound around Fiction A through L, curling in lazy ringlets. It gathered into soft puffs that bobbed and banked against the shelves like bumper cars. Suddenly, sharp fingers of flame shot through the smoke and jabbed upward. No, wait. Before I even go on, first of all, it's just insane. It's, like, ridiculously good. Um, Thank you. How would you even think to describe a fire as onion skin? Interesting. Um, I bet you have not been asked that question yet. No, and I love it because to me, I mean, I love talking on the sort of molecular level about writing. It's so much more interesting. When I'm writing description, I, I either want to choose a description that is so natural and almost organic that... It, it just slides by or one that where there's tension and when you think of an onion skin and how fragile it is and how if you held a match to an onion skin it would be gone like that um, I like the tension of using that description to describe a fire when these two things could never exist in the same place at the same time fire and an onion but how would onions can even enter your bra- like you could have me sit here for five days in front of my laptop and I would not think of describe of onion skin it just wouldn't even that's really I would funny. think of radish skin before onion like how does that even enter your head I think that is mysterious and I mean that very sincerely sure. I think sometimes I'll write and I'll a word will come out and I I don't know where it came from it's not that I was sitting in my kitchen as I was writing and looked around and thought, hmm, what could I dis- what right. what would work to describe the a, a sort of white whitish color? It it simply came out of nowhere, and the minute I thought of it, it felt <coughs> right in the way that it's so wrong, um, that it's so it's startling. Right. Uh, it, yeah. And I like that quality of it. Um, it, I, I think, um, as I said, I feel description has to either feel absolutely fluid and natural, or it's got to shake you a little bit. And 
in the case of describing the fire, I wanted it to keep feeling, you know, really uncomfortable and um, both seductive and uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. That's so, you know, there were also these ideas of it being lazy and ringlets and, you know, things that are... Is that literally um, your watch ringing? That's my watch oh, ringing. Do you need to get that? Um, I can say I'll call back. Okay. It was really important to me to write that section about the fire in this in a really vivid way. I mean, this was the drama of the book. So I spent a lot of time choosing the words, like literally word by word, with the idea that it had to feel like a way you've never read about a fire. Right. Because we've all read reports sure. of fires. It's um, Many times. Yeah. So the idea of it feeling like a way you'd never read about it was really important to me. I kept in my mind that the fire was, in a sense, uh, as if a wild animal had been released into the library and was prowling around looking for what it could eat. You actually, I just want to say, one of my favorite things you wrote was you described it as a monster snacking on chips a few pages later, which is great. Because it's like... I, it actually is like a monster snack and chicks. It's like, yeah. I have no idea. Again, I don't know how that entered your head. Like, that is not something that would have entered my brain, ever. It, it, well, it was funny because as I was writing more and more, I kept feeling like, well, the fire is just eating these books, like gobbling the books. Right. And how, if you were a fire, where the most perfect place you can imagine being would be in a library. Right. And you'd just be sort of grabbing one after another and gobbling it up. And... The, the image of a monster snacking on chips, again, had that weird tension where on one hand, it's sort of playful and funny, and on the other hand, it's horrible. And, and that is what, it seemed really accurate to me that the fire was literally gobbling <laughs> the library up. The imagery was really important to me, that it, it kept surprising you as you were reading, and that it didn't feel like every other description you've ever read of a fire, you know, in the newspaper reporting on this fire or that fire. I wanted it to feel um, like it, it was embodied in some way. Is it... um? Like, I remember when I was in college at Delaware, University of Delaware, and um, I wrote something, I wrote that four basketball players were like four of the biggest busts since Mount Rushmore, right? Like a crappy line. And someone wrote, you know, some professor, right? That's a terrible line. It's too easy and you're overwriting and blah, blah, blah. Is there a complicated line between, like, I could see someone in college writing The Color of Onions Kid and some crappy professor being like, no, that's, you're making the reader work. You know, like, uh, mm -hmm. onion skin, what the hell does that mean? You know, like... Is there a sort of line between going too far with description and... I, I think there absolutely is. And I indulge myself in the section about the fire because I thought I want... This is going to be really visual, really descriptive. But I also felt that I wanted to keep it lean and mean. And yes, there's a lot of description, but it's pretty spare. Mm -hmm. If you go through it, it's it's pretty. There, it's not flowery. Right. It's pretty direct and slim down. And when I wrote it, 
I thought every word in here has to work. I don't want any extra words because I am pushing this into the realm of very descriptive and very full of imagery. So there can't be any excess. Right. Is it possible to go overboard? Absolutely. I mean, you know, it's one of the most... Um, it's probably the, one of the easiest writing mistakes to make right. is just going overboard and having just too much muchness. Um, and to me, every word is a machine and it has to be working. And right. if it's not working, chuck it out. Right. So even though I had a lot of words in there and a lot of descriptive words, they each one was carrying a lot of weight. Do you go through your copy and go, Ch -ch -ch, like, do you oh, cross yeah. out words all the time? You do. Yeah, yeah, I do. Right. I mean, I almost feel that my, my habit is to reduce too much yeah. and to be too compressed and not air out ideas and not air out description and kind of give it room to move. So I would say that's what I look out for uh -huh. since I'm so inclined to just keep cutting it down and cutting it down. I sometimes say, well, no, just give it a little more air to breathe. Let, let's just play with this description a little bit more. It's not... So I think that I trust myself to add a little bit because my inclination is to subtract. Right. It's interesting how when you come up, I mean, like college, young journalism, like I, in my early in my career, there's no adjective I did not use. You know, right. like a million oh times God. over. Yeah. And now I do agree with you. It's almost like you're so conditioned to trim all the fat off that you tend to go the opposite way too far right. sometimes. I agree with right. you. Right. It, it's an evolution, you know, and it's a good kind of maturity as a writer that you get a lot more spare and a lot more slimmed down. But you can also go overboard and not, not have... A, a little room in there to to let the language right. kind of play. Yeah. Right. I agree. Yeah. But, oh my God, I wrote, I was so much more wordy and descriptive when I first started out as a writer. Right. No question. Do you go back and read some of your old stuff and never. discover? No, you never do? Never. Oh you my God, no. Right. I'm one of those people who... I know some people look at their old stuff all the time. I'm the opposite. I never reread it. So I've funny. never read, I never read my books again. So this never, book, once it was out, you have not read the book. Well, I've done a ton of readings, and so oh. in my readings, I've read lots of parts of it, yeah. but I have not sat down and read the whole book. Interesting. Yeah, and I, I don't know that I ever will. Yeah. I mean, it's just, <laughs> right. I feel like, ah, I don't want... I don't but don't you look at it? Let me see this. Do you look at it like, um, again, not to compare? I wrote this USFL book, nobody told me, everyone said, don't do it. When it came out, I didn't reread it and reread it, but I looked at it and I thought, man, nobody, <laughs> like, nobody thought there'd be a book on this. And here's this book. Here's this book about the 1986 LA Central Branch of Library of Fire. Don't you look at this and think, kind of like, Fuck yeah! Like, there's no um, way this should have been a book. Yeah. Um. Yes, that I do. Okay. But I don't. And every now and again, when I'm doing a reading and I'm going through a section, I will think, Oh, that's yeah, it turned out pretty well. Right. You know, or, um, 
I, it's not that I'm that I don't reread it because I'm not proud of it. It's more, it's a little like looking in a mirror. I, I often think, ah, eh, that's all right. I'm, I'm fine. Whatever I look like, that's. It is what it is. It is what it is. I'm just gonna move on and. Um, I also am so critical that I see things that I would change, and that's very frustrating. Very. Uh, because I just think, ugh, I should have done that differently. Right. And when it's sort of too late to do that, I don't like thinking about it. Right. That stuff does haunt you. Oh. Yeah. Terrible. What's one that haunts you from your career? Is there? Is there? I'm actually being serious. Is there a spare word you used or something you left out or something in one of your books where you just think back and you're like, ugh. Uh, well, I mean, there are a lot of um, sentences that when I read out loud, I edit it. Mm-hmm. I mean, I can point out many of them to you. There's no... There's no single blooper where I look at and, and, you know, think, oh, my God, I'll never get over this. But there are a lot of little tweaks that I think, oh, if only if I could go back and fix this, I would definitely edit this or edit that. Um, But nothing that I can think of that really keeps me up at night. Thanks, God. Yeah, that's good. Um, All right, wait, back to page 23. So you wrote, um, the temperature reached 451 degrees and the books began smoldering. Now, 451 is the temperature where books actually burn, correct? Where paper burns. Okay, so we knew that. Um, Their covers burst like popcorn. Pages flared and blackened and then sprang away from their bindings. The fire flashed through fiction, consuming as it traveled. It reached for the cookbooks. The cookbooks roasted, which I love, by the way. The fire scrambled to the sixth tier and then to the seventh. Okay, so you're describing the path of this fire. You're obviously not witnessing the fire. Is this part of it? Is there any guesstimation here, or is it completely... Uh, well, I had the report from the fire department. I had the report from the... And then that was detailed, like, almost minute to minute, wow. detailing in very dry terms, uh, you know, what part of the building was now being engaged, what hose they attached to which standpipe. So it was it was really um, like a police procedural. It went from one, you know, description to the next, which was really helpful for me. It was almost like having documentary footage that I could write from. I interviewed a lot of firefighters, so I got more anecdotal material, and then I had a report from the insurance company that also detailed the fire and the damage, and so I had a lot of great material to work from. I couldn't have... I don't know anything about fire. It would have been impossible for me to guess what happened um, because I don't know anything so I really was writing off of these from these reports from these interviews from the material that I had that I that gave me the the facts of what unfolded how long did it take you to write to soup to nuts research write everything uh six years yeah it took uh, forever and is that six years of like well i'm gonna take five months off here to work on blah 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 you know what um I mean? yeah i mean in those six years there were certainly dry spells where i wasn't working on it and um 
where it haunted me. <laughs> but I took time off to do some magazine pieces, um, you know, to, I mean, yes, I took, it wasn't that every day I woke up at nine, worked on the book till five right. for six years. It was definitely, you know, work in a burst and then take a break, do a magazine piece, which ends up really being like two months or so, right. if not more, and then come back to the book. Right. And do you write, do you report everything and then write it? Or yes. You, you do, so I do I. Write, really? Yeah. yeah. All right, so how long do you give yourself to actually write the book? Well, I was already way over my deadline, so... Like, it, what does way over mean? How well, far? Well, you know, like several years. So <laughs> awesome. I, I had extended my deadline many times. When I finished the reporting, I try to write a thousand words a day. Oh, so so I. I. I mean, it seems like a good yeah. number. So I was able to project forward and think, all right, if I really keep up this pace of a thousand words a day, give or take a little, let's say I'm going to do 5,000 words a week, I'll be done with this book. If the book is going to be around 100,000 words on such and such a date. So I kind of, then what really happened is I told my publisher that I would have it to them by February of whenever it was. Don't you find that to be an important step? Like, I actually oh. need to do that. Yeah. 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 I, I mean, I would not have been able to Rambo through the last six months um, had I not had that deadline and have the just the sense that it would really that it was really important to get it done and there was a reason they said if you want it to come out in the fall which you did it has to come out we have to have it at the very latest by February 1st otherwise we just can't make it to the fall in which case then it'll either have to come out in the spring or you have to wait a full year and I thought I'm not going to wait a full year yeah. I really wanted to come out this fall so I it wasn't merely a date on a calendar it had a, it had real repercussions in terms of when the book would be published so I thought I really wanted to come out in the fall of 2018 yeah. so I'm just gonna do whatever it takes do you print everything out yeah I do I I just I feel like it's, it's totally different to see things on paper than to be looking on a computer. So I print out a lot. I go through a lot of paper. All right, so this is a true story. The other day I'm working on a book now, and I printed out all my notes. I went to Kinko's. It cost, it cost me $930. Ooh, and I yikes. printed out 17,000 pages of notes. Oh, my God. Notes. Oh, my and God. I, you're the first person I'm telling how much I paid for this. It's preposterous. But I don't, I, I swear to God, I don't know another way to do it. Yeah. Well, and I feel when I teach, I'm constantly nagging people and saying, don't work off your computer strictly. You've got to be able at some point to see all your stuff at once, to be able to move it around, see how things fit together. Right. And if you're working on a computer screen, this is all you're ever seeing. You'll never be able to figure out a structure. 100% agree. You'll never know what came first and what comes next. I mean, it's just, it's it's a really artificial 
way of seeing a piece of writing. So is your, I call my office my crack den. Is your office filled with like... It's got a lot of paper. Do you write in your office? Yes, I do. Although I also... um, when I mean, there was a point where I just couldn't work at home anymore, and so I rented an office for a couple of months, and then I worked in the library for a while. You know, there was a point where working at home just wasn't productive for me. Yeah. It was just too distracting. My husband works at home. My son would be home from school at 3, and from it would be like 3 o'clock on, I couldn't get anything done, and I started panicking and thinking part of the problem is I can't be at home. Yeah. So I just rented this totally boring WeWork space oh. that yeah. was just a neutral box. It was, pretty, it was helpful, actually. So you're not a coffee shop writer? No, because I have so much material. I, I just wouldn't... I mean, I've done it a little, but it's not very practical for me. Yeah. I can't... I, I need the material with me, and in co- most coffee shops, you've got a little table, and you don't have room to spread stuff out. I literally carry a duffel bag to a coffee shop. I'm the guy talking to himself in the corner of the coffee shop with a duffel bag. And then where do you, do you spread your notes out on the table? See, I'm I the guess, jerk who takes the double table. Oh. Yeah. Well, that's why coffee shops make money, is yeah. they have people coming and working. And yeah, them, but. I don't know. Um, you have a line here that I love. So, uh, page 35, you said, another senior library librarian I interviewed that day told me that seeing the library in ruins so traumatized her that she didn't get her period for the next four months. How do you even get a librarian to admit to you that she didn't get her period for four months? Like, how? Uh, well, I think that being a, a woman writer is very different. I mean, in many ways, that um, whatever the dynamics are of gender in the world we live in, people will often tell me things that surprise me in retrospect. I don't know whether it's that... And it's not just women who tell me things. It's... um, And I think it has to do with a a different quality of the... A different sort of relationship that I end up having with the people I'm writing about. This was something where it was an amazing... I mean, it, it was such a fascinating fact and so useful to illustrate how traumatized the librarians were it was it was phenomenal yeah. um, she brought it up we had spent several hours together talking about the library and the fire and she said it kind of as an aside and I thought wow that's crazy amazing yeah. and how glad I was that she even thought to tell me um, because obviously it's very personal right. but it was also an amazing fact about the stress and trauma of this experience it was wonderful you know I go into my interviews with people generally without a lot of questions I usually just say hey tell me about X Y Z and do you have tape recorder going? I don't use a tape recorder. I take notes by wow. hand. Yeah. Wow. 
you don't find that that see my my problem with that I have found is that um, they're conscious of you taking notes. See, I think people are more conscious of tape recorders. Oh, interesting. And I'm more conscious of a tape recorder. I also think that I am a better listener when I'm taking notes. And yeah, it's much more clunky, and you have to scribble, and you have to sometimes stall while you're finishing a sentence. But it. I feel that I'm paying much more attention when I'm taking notes, and I don't know whether, the, I mean, this is purely based on my sense of it, mm-hmm. is that a pad and a pen is less distracting to people than, or, or they're less self-conscious. So the idea of being recorded. Yes. Right. And that being recorded and having all your mistakes and stumbles on a tape is off-putting to a lot of people. Do you worry about getting quotes wrong? Oh, gosh, yeah. (laughs) I mean, and as a result, I tend to paraphrase more than I quote. I use quotes, but I, I think people think I use more than I do. Oh, I actually, I think one of the things that is fascinating in this book is the limited number of quotes. Um, and I'm always stressing to people, nonstop, quote last quote, because you can say it more interestingly, generally. I 100% agree. And I, I feel like you should never use a quote to deliver a simple factual piece of information. <laughs> never, right. You know, someone's age, where they're, any of that stuff. Right. Because quotes are, quotes are, they're an interruption in your experience as a reader. So I only use a quote if it's going to do double duty. If it both says something interesting and in some way adds to your sense of the person saying it. Right. Yeah. It can't only do one or the other. Yeah. It has to do both. So, yeah, I don't use quotes that much. And it it's, um, you know, it's one of those things where every now and again I will think, oh, that w- I should have written that down more exactly and now I can't use it as a quote. But I would rather have those occasions than have a tape recorder and have to deal with with everything that entails. Well, I find something really interesting about your writing, magazine writing-wise. There's a real tendency to be very patterned, right? And it's this. Your lead is, not you, I'm saying generally, it's da-da-da-da-da, you know, when Mike Trout wakes up in the morning, blah, blah, blah. Right. Uh, then he blah, blah, blah. You know, I, Trout says, blah, blah, blah. Yes. Off. Yes. And to me, the fight is not to do that. And right. eventually you just stop doing it. Right. But you never do that. Right. Well, and I grew up in a world of magazine journalism where there was literally a template of... Joe Brown, you know, leans back in his chair. Right. Takes a pack, took a cigarette. Yeah, blah, 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 he said. Blah, 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 blah. And it's it's so tedious. And I, I just, you know, if it takes four or five pages before there's a quote, fine. Right. People are, I want people to be listening to me. Right. And, you know, not to be a narcissist, but I'm the storyteller. Right. I better be doing I'm Susan, damn it. Yeah. (laughs) I feel like it's, they're listening to me tell a story. The quotes 
are really great when they're great, but the the main event is me telling the story. Right. You can listen, watch a YouTube clip of anyone talking. Right, right. Exactly, and and I think that's a misperception. I mean, I'm glad that it's a misperception that I use lots of quotes um, because I think that I'm doing a good job telling the story, so that you think you're hearing the people talking, but in fact, you're not. I'm right. telling you the story. Right. Um, and I do think about that very consciously, that I'm, you're listening to me tell as the narrator, and that's more important than these quotes. Right. And then when I have a great quote, Use fantastic. It. Right. I love them, but I don't, I don't need lots and lots and lots of them. I only need the really good one. Before we continue with Two Writers Slinging Yang, a quick word from our sponsor. Hey, this is Jeff Perlman, and I'm here with my wife, Catherine, who's the author of the parenting book, Ignore It. So, Catherine, if I understand you right, what you're saying is the best way to deal with an annoyance, if it's really, really irksome, is to simply ignore it? Is that what you're saying? Ignore annoying people, right? Catherine, seriously, what the... Oh, I get it. Want to go to 503-sports.com and find that throwback Anthony Cavillo Las Vegas posse jersey? The black, white, and gold one? Yeah. Stitched letters? Sure. With the name along the back? I thought you were ignoring me. I mean, I was, but there's nothing annoying about 503 Sports, kings of the throwback sports merchandise. Ah, oh, thanks. No, you're still annoying. You wrote about Deborah, and you said Deborah is small and muscular with pale blue eyes and cottony blonde hair and pretty dimples, blah, 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 blah. What if Deb's ugly, right? What if you're writing about someone who's just factually ugly? Can you describe them that way? Um, I've written about people who are ugly, and... I, I would never, I mean, it's, it's a tough thing. Um, then I would simply describe certain features or, you know, characterize them in some way because I, there's no point in possibly making someone feel awful. Um, I think you can find something interesting to say about the way anyone looks sure. without it being a judgment, and maybe that's the difference. Um, I mean, she was certainly not beautiful, but she had interesting features, and there were things that I could mention about how she looked that were val that either were positive or they were neutral. They were, you know, cottony blonde hair. It's not a positive, it's not a negative, it's just sort of... It is. Um, it is what it is. ...factual report. Um, and it's... But it's tricky. I mean, if you're writing about someone who's obese or where you enter the zone of judgment and subjectivity that could be really uncomfortable, I think you have to wrestle with the value of making of exposing someone to that versus skipping over it don't I, describe them I think I spent a lot of my early career being completely full of shit about the power of people's eyes like when people say her eyes blah 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 or his eyes blah 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 they fill up a room or they blah 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 I don't know I, I, I kind of feel like we overstate eyes in journalism. Yeah, well, that's interesting. You, you disagree? No, I don't disagree. I think you're right. And I think that it's... Um, people also... A 
attribute much more sort of meaning to the way someone's eyes look and it's a sort of bullshitty shorthand right. for I don't I mean, know what else to say yeah but it, it's very funny I, I think that you're absolutely right I hadn't thought about it but you're right that it's people really waste a lot of time doing that and it's boring those kind of descriptions are really boring right let me ask you one more thing um as I said to you, I, I read part of this book to my wife, and she was nervous about having bad dreams about a fire. You lived a fire for six years. I mean, you know, um, when you're writing about something like that, a very negative event or a powerful event, I don't know. Does it mess with you at all? Does it? How does that affect you and your day to day? Well, you know, I've had a few instances where I was writing about something that very much upset me and and felt um, I couldn't shake it off. It was in my head, even when I wasn't writing. What's an example? I wrote about a murder. Uh, many years ago and it it spooked me because it was so upsetting and I couldn't stop thinking about it right. and it really made me think I'm not sure if I want to do this kind of writing anymore because it's not that easy for me to turn it off seeing the pictures of the library in just devastated was very disturbing I mean there's no doubt that it I mean the, those pictures are really awful I put one in with yeah. the firemen sort yeah. of peering through these rows of charred books um, and hearing people talk about how traumatic it was for them was really disturbing but there were and actually writing about the, the thing that really haunted me were these UNESCO reports about all of the libraries burned over the history of, you know, civilization and knowing what that meant and knowing how many, how those burned libraries in many cases were simply a, a kind of appetizer to what happened next, which was people being killed. And that really haunted me. Um, I mean, I think those reports and writing about all of those libraries being burned in the war, what really disturbed me. And how do you separate from that? Unfortunately, I think if you're going to do a good job as a writer, you can't really let yourself off easy. You have to really embrace the material and dig into it. And it can be disturbing, for sure. After I wrote about that murder, I, I thought, I don't think I can do that kind of writing anymore. It was it was too upsetting, and it, it was it was awful. And the fam, both the family of the victim and the family of the murderer, were kind of playing for my affections, and I felt very emotionally kind of strung out about it. And I thought, I don't think I'm cut out for this. Right. On the other hand, I don't want to 
just write about puppy dogs and rainbows. You know, I'm interested in, in things that are, in some cases, uncomfortable. And I think you just need to have enough of a buffer emotionally to step back from it when you need to. This yeah. was, you know, this was disturbing to even imagine. Yeah, I get it. Do you get tired of being asked um, what it's like to have a Meryl Streep play you in a movie? You know, I don't get tired of it. I only feel that I don't have a great answer, right. which is, um, <laughs> it, it's, there's no way to describe it because it's such an out-of-body experience. And so that I, I can't say, well, it was similar to the time that so-and-so played me in a movie. Right. Or, you know, I mean, there is no comparison. It's bizarre. It's super bizarre. It, you know, the first time I saw a, a screening of the movie, I felt like I had gone into some weird hallucination. It was so strange. Um, on the other hand, if you're going to have someone play you in a movie, right. that's a good person to yeah, go totally. with, for sure. And in fact, my willingness to let them do the movie was increased a thousandfold when I knew she was in it because I thought, all right, so no matter what, it's not going to be ridiculous. Right. It's going to be good. Yeah, works out well. Well, thank you. I know you have a parking. I don't want you to get a parking ticket. I would feel you be the first the first person in this history of this podcast to get a parking ticket. Oh, <laughs> would be well. I could make history. Oh yeah. But thank um, you for doing this. Seriously, my pleasure. Yeah. This is awesome, and thank you for toughing out my schedule. Oh, no, no, no. My pleasure. My pleasure. I want to thank today's guest, Susan Orlean, for joining me on Two Writers Sling and Yang. You can follow Susan on Twitter at Susan Orlean and visit her website at SusanOrlean.com. This podcast is sponsored by 503 Sports, kings of the throwback sports merchandise. You can visit the website at 503-sports.com. One can listen to True Riders Singing Yang on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, and reviews are always appreciated. Music is by the dazzling MC White Owl. Thanks again for joining me, and remember, keep writing.